Hi, I'm Mitch Kokai, sitting in for Mark Roderman. Coming up, President Biden makes his first address to Congress. We'll get the latest from the General Assembly, and Governor Cooper gives his report on the state of the state. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor to the North Carolina Speaker of the House. Asher Hildebrand with the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Political Analyst Joe Stewart and Travis Fain, State Government Reporter at WRAL. Asher, let's start with your thoughts on President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress. That's right, Mitch. So this was President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress, coinciding with the end of his first 100 days in office. And it was a, a wide-ranging uh, speech touching on everything from uh, pandemic recovery to police violence to foreign policy. But the centerpiece was Biden's American Families Plan, which is a sweeping $1.8 trillion proposal to invest in childcare, universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, uh, tuition-free community college and other programs designed to support families and children. This comes on the heels of the American Rescue Plan, which was enacted last month and provides about $2 trillion for uh, pandemic relief and recovery, and the proposed American Jobs Plan, which would invest another $2.3 trillion, mostly in physical infrastructure. But there are a couple things notable about the Families Plan in particular. First, not many of its provisions are brand new. In fact, most of them are pretty commonplace in other developed econ economies. But by framing them as a part of our economic infrastructure and international competitiveness, Biden is really shifting the way that we, we conceive of these policies. Second, most of them are wildly popular. A poll out this week from Monmouth University found that about two out of three Americans support his plan, and as significantly, about two out of three Americans support his proposal to raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for it. Now, public support does not translate into votes in Congress, uh, and uh, uh, Biden's betting once again, though, that by taking popular policies that have broad public support. He's sort of telling Republicans, well, you can come along with this. I'd like bipartisan support if possible, but if not, we're prepared to move forward on a partisan basis alone. Thanks, Asher. Uh, Travis, what were your thoughts about uh, President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress? Well, I mean, it's a lot of money, right? And we don't do anything so well in, in, in the U.S. government as spend lots and lots of money uh, not always without a plan to pay for it. Uh, one of the things he wants to do is undo the 2017 uh, tax cuts, or at least some of them, uh, particularly as uh, help the wealthy. And, you know, I hope I hope people realize at the time that those tax cuts were going to help the wealthy uh, and that they were not going to pay for themselves, uh, like President Trump said. I, I also thought it was interesting the, the president said that uh, he wants to cure cancer. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's a pipe dream, but, you know, you look what happened with the coronavirus here and how quickly we were able to develop a vaccine here. He wants to come up with a DARPA uh, for the National Institute of Health. That's like a, a, a real cutting edge scientific uh, government agency 
uh, that deals with all sorts of things. So uh, kind of shifting the focus there uh, on cancer. So yeah, it, it, I, it, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know how much support any of this is going to get from the Republicans in Congress. Yeah. Speaking of Republicans, Nelson Dollar, your thoughts? Uh, yes, Senator Tim Scott's response to the president's address was certainly a very personal one uh, based on his life experiences and his challenges growing up. His themes were a combination of uh, national conservatism, think Teddy Roosevelt, uh, racial reconciliation, and traditional uh, religious values. I think it was a powerful rejoinder to the progressives return to the era of big government coupled with uh, radical woke social agenda and on the financing part you know last year uh, over the course of the last year congress has spent uh, over 7.2 trillion dollars on covid response and relief raising the national debt president biden's proposal uh, is for another $4 trillion. That's $11 trillion or seven times what we annually spend uh, on discretionary programs. So yeah, big, uh, we're talking, far higher taxes as well. Yeah, we're talking very big money, aren't we, Joe? Yeah, really big money. And it's apparent that uh, President Biden's plan is to go big. In some ways, this was the final repudiation of the Reagan doctrine of government's not the solution, government's the problem, and more along the lines of what a president like Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposed in The Great Deal. The interesting thing to me is, of course, these are aspirational goals that the president has set, but everything should be seen through the lens of the first midterm election. It's critical for the Democrats to hold Congress if they hope to have the president be able to implement any number of these proposals. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what deliverable does come out of this package that Democratic congressional candidates can go back to their home states and campaign on in the re-election of 22 when they'll be in all new districts as a result of redistricting. The one thing that I thought well, was interesting, Joe, one Chinese Joe, government official Joe, made the comment. Be, Joe, that, we'll be following up on this uh, as, as time goes on. We need to move on at this point. Another busy week at the North Carolina General Assembly. This time, let's start with Nelson. Uh, yes, this week, General Assembly focused on structural issues. The Senate passed two bills, uh, SB 346, which is Emergency Management Act revisions, and that would ensure that statewide elected officials on the Council of State have a voice when the governor declares an emergency. The bill also engages the General Assembly uh, in the process for extended emergency. Uh, Senate Bill 360 uh, prohibit collusive settlements by the Attorney General. Uh, again, this would engage the General Assembly when its leadership is party to a lawsuit. You know, if someone sues you, your attorney is obligated to get your approval on any settlement. Uh, we believe that the, the people's elected rep representatives uh, deserve the same. Uh, the House was working on uh, HJR 330, which calls on Congress to oppose uh, HR 1 as an unconstitutional federal takeover of the state's authority to, to conduct elections. Very interesting stuff. Asher, what sorts of things were you following from the General Assembly this week? Well, on Tuesday, General Assembly Democrats renewed their call to amend state law governing the release of police-worn body camera footage uh, in response to the tragic events in Elizabeth City. Currently, the law makes body camera footage private by default unless a judge orders its release. 
which is why that uh, it's uh, the footage in this case of the Pasquotank uh, County Sheriff deputies killing of Andrew Brown Jr. has not been released despite the fact that everybody from the sheriff to the county attorney to the city council to the governor and attorney general to the victim's family has called for its release. The Democratic proposal would just shift the default uh, to make that footage public after 48 hours unless a judge rules that its release would not serve the public interest. And that would bring North Carolina in line with a lot of other states, including Virginia, that treat uh, body camera footage as public record. And that story, of course, is getting a lot of national attention. Joe, what sorts of things are you following? Yeah, still following a lot of what has come out of uh, COVID-19 in terms of the provision of health care in our state. Some uh, legislative activity on things like telehealth, making it possible for patients to visit with doctors remotely, which was an essential part of how services had to be provided during COVID-19. So some issues specific to what we learned as a result of the pandemic, but some other lingering health care and health insurance related issues, uh, like the certificate of need law, the, the requirement that a provider secure from the state of North Carolina permission to have a facility open in a particular part of the state. Some people feel as though that's uh, 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 holding back the benefit to consumers of having competition among health care providers. Other providers saying it makes it more difficult for them to make the investments necessary to have facilities that provide essential care in parts of our state. Healthcare, it seems, will become a residual part of every legislative session from this point going forward. It's just a lot of complicated issues that we're having to sort through. Travis, you spend a lot of time at the General Assembly. What else should we know about what's going on? Um, I think it's interesting this week. Uh, there have been a couple of transgender bills uh, that deal one with sports and one that would basically say teachers have to tell the parents if they think a kid is transgender. Uh, leadership indicating neither of those are going to move. So we're just going to put that uh, in a shelf for now. Uh, the two things that Nelson mentioned, the, the, the lawsuit settlements bill and also the uh, emergency powers bill, those look like they're going to pass, but then the governor's probably going to veto them. We've seen this back and forth over separation of powers. And then on the police body cameras video, that's something that does have support from Democrats. But I have not heard a lot of support from Republicans, leadership indicating that's an issue they're going to go slow on, not necessarily move quickly on reforms. And those particular reforms not included in the major police criminal justice reform bills with Republican backing that I do expect to move. Well, obviously, very important stuff going on at the General Assembly. I'm going to go right back to Travis because something else that happened at the General Assembly was Governor Cooper's State of the State address. Tell us about that. Yeah, he gave that speech Monday night, laying out his vision for the next few years, real similar to what the president did this week. Uh, if you follow state politics closely, there wasn't really anything new, uh, but then there wouldn't be because the governor hasn't been able to get his agenda through a Republican-controlled legislature. So his agenda really has not changed. There is some more optimism now, though, that there's compromise to be had between the two sides. You know, they tried to get rid, rid of each other, as the governor said, uh, in the elections last year. The power dynamics stayed the same. Republicans control the General Assembly, the governor and the mansion. So they got to work together. Uh, he ticked through his budget proposal Monday night. You know, he wants to expand Medicaid, expand pre-K, increase teacher salaries, pass a bond to fund school construction, roads, bridges, transit, water and sewer, broadband internet. He wants to do a grant program to help uh, hotels, restaurants, others hurt by the pandemic. He had a section on climate change and racism. Want to note, racism was something that Speaker of the House Tim Moore mentioned in his response to the speech, directly acknowledging that the last year brought, and I quote, long ignored disparities in criminal justice to the surface. Like I said, there are some reform bills at the legislature, and while the Republicans ones don't go as far as advocates on the left would like, there is interest and room for compromise there. 
Joe, what stood out to you from the governor's address? Well, the most interesting thing was that the governor's address to the joint session of the House and Senate came on the heels of the announcement that Apple was going to locate a headquarters facility in Research Triangle Park, bringing a billion dollars in investment to the state of North Carolina and 3,000 more jobs. It'd be very hard for Governor Cooper not to have an irrepressible smile on his face while he's talking to legislators about the economic future of North Carolina when such a significant announcement had just been made. Clearly, North Carolina remains an attractive destination for businesses looking to either expand a facility that they already have in the state or to bring a new facility, as Apple will, to North Carolina. This is a significant moment in time, and the governor's called for bipartisanship to try to get a state budget enacted with the Republican leadership of the General Assembly. Those are the kinds of things that big corporate interests are very keen on, seeing that the government's well run in North Carolina and making sure that we're getting our work done, like having in place a revenue and spending package for the state of North Carolina. Thanks, Joe. Asher, your thoughts on the state of the state? You know, this is a governor whose entire first term was defined by crisis, first from natural disasters, then from the coronavirus pandemic. So it's no surprise that he's uh, eager to get down to work both on the unfinished business like Medicaid expansion and teacher pay, but also on uh, on challenges that have seen a renewed focus like uh, systemic racism and racial disparities. Uh, now, the question, quite frankly, is whether he'll have a good faith negotiating partner in the General Assembly. And uh, if you watch the speech on Monday and if you watched Speaker Moore's response, as Travis said, you saw a lot of talk about bipartisanship and common ground. And hope springs eternal that it's more than just talk and that they'll be able to get down to work. But as Nelson acknowledged the same week, the Senate passed two bills that would restrict the governor's powers. And so forgive me if I'm a little cynical about whether we've entered a new era of bipartisan comedy. Let's go to Nelson now. Your boss had the official response. Uh, what are Republicans saying about the state of the state? Well, of course, we need to balance our powers among the branches. But the Republican response by House Speaker Moore did touch on the importance of working together to achieve the shared goals that everybody have. Good jobs, safe homes, better quality education for our children. The speaker also addressed the challenges of recovering from the pandemic, getting uh, students back in classrooms, uh, providing summer learning opportunities, and getting our small businesses fully opened and everybody back to work. So Republicans will remain committed to sound budgeting and low taxes and work on those shared priorities, uh, which are investments in education and health care, and of course, critical infrastructure like broadband access, water and sewer projects, and transportation. More to come on all of these topics uh, in the weeks ahead, I'm sure. Let's now switch gears. New census data out this week. North Carolina is going to get another seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, and that means big issues for redistricting. Tell us about it, Joe. Yeah, the numbers are in, and North Carolina has 10,453,948 people living in it, according to the 2020 census. Uh, that was the sixth largest uh, growth of any state in the United States and the 15th, we North Carolina, the 15th fastest growing state. Now, these numbers have to be plugged in to try to provide the General Assembly with the basis that they need to reapportion the congressional and state legislative districts. And what that means is looking at the new population data, trying to create districts where about the same number of people live in each of those districts. Now, the things to watch are this. One, the full census data has not yet been revealed. That comes in a few more months. Two, the General Assembly's already announced their plans to once they get through with the primary issues of this session, they'll recess and then come back in the fall specifically for the purpose 
of redrawing these lines. The, the key factors to watch, what incumbent legislators are probably not going to run for re-election in 2022. Why does that matter? Well, when you're drawing maps, to some extent, the incumbents are interested to make sure that the new district lines, are, at least in part, provide a district they can run and win in. And so if you're an incumbent, and particularly in the majority party, you're very keen to make sure that the new map favors your reelection chances. If a seat is open, then maybe the drawing of the map is not as significant because there's not really an incumbent who has a vested interest in this. Yeah, it, very, said, very interesting, very interesting issues. Nelson, you've been through this before as a legislator. What should we know about the, the likely redistricting battle coming up? Well, I think the concern is what's happening in Congress where they're pushing H.R. 1 uh, because they believe that unless they strip uh, legislatures of their constitutional authority to draw congressional districts, they're likely to lose more seats in Republican-leaning states in the Sun Belt and the West. And there's also a major, major motivation uh, for the Democrats wanting to add more justices to pack the Supreme Court with Biden appointees because numerous redistricting cases will find their way to the courts in the next year and a half. So this is going to be, unfortunately, nationally, a raw battle for power between the two major parties, and our Constitution is certainly going to be tested in the balance. Travis, your thoughts on this issue? Well, in North Carolina, I'm interested who they draw that 14th seat for, right? I mean, uh, who wants to move up? Does it get drawn in a way that perhaps helps Speaker of the House Tim Moore uh, run for Congress and making way for, you know, everybody, all his lieutenants under him to move up in the leadership of the State House of Representatives? I'm also interested in the process. I know we're not going to get an independent redistricting commission uh, like some want, uh, but Republicans in control have said it's going to be a more transparent process. Uh, more like what we saw a year or two ago, sorry, it all blends together, uh, when the court's forced to redraw and it was done with cameras literally pointing at the computer as the maps were drawn. So, I mean, this is one area where process is just so important and transparency is real important too. Asher, are we in for another long slog over the decade over redistricting? Here too, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I think probably so. Uh, you know, look, in 2020, uh, Democratic candidates for the United States House won about 30,000 more votes than Republican candidates for the United States House. Uh, yet Republicans hold eight of the state's 13 congressional seats, and now they're talking about drawing a map that uh, favors Republicans uh, nine, nine to five or even 10 to four. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, any outcome that's not, uh, you know, 7-7 seven, seven or uh, at worst 8-6, it's probably a distortion of the will of North Carolina voters. But I'm also not naive about what the process will look like or what it's going to produce. And as Travis said, that process is just so important. I would just say that even with that added transparency, we still have a current map that that's disproportionately favors one party and that, uh, in my view, uh, does not reflect uh, a small d democratic process. Well, we are going to be following this, of course, as the weeks and months go forward on this issue. It's time now for us to turn to the underreported stories of the week. And let's start this time with Nelson. Yes, the Three Seas Initiative. This was started in 2015 uh, by 12 country alliance from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Adriatic and Black Seas in the south. The initiative is anchored by Poland, the Czech Republic, and Romania. The stated goal is to create a north-south 
connectivity in terms of transportation, energy, and digital infrastructure. This, the unstated goal is to provide a central European check on uh, Russians, uh, Russia's westward expansion. Uh, President Trump supported the initiative, convinced Congress to provide a billion dollars uh, in their investment fund and more military aid. The Biden administration has now announced they are reaffirming U.S. support for the Three Seas Initiative. Asher, your most underreported story of the week. My underreported story comes from Texas, where the fallout continues from the week-long uh, power grid failure in February. According to a report this week by NBC News, ProPublica, and the Texas Tribune, uh, the, the blackout led to uh, the worst uh, carbon monoxide poisoning outbreak in recent U.S. history as Texans turn toward their cars, their gas grills, and other unconventional sources of heat to stay warm in the freezing cold led to at least 11 deaths uh, and over 1,400 trips to the emergency room because of this poisoning. Also shed light on the fact that Texas is one of only six states in the country that does not require carbon monoxide uh, detectors uh, on a statewide basis in homes. And so it's hard to find a clearer example of state inaction on an issue that should be pretty non-controversial, uh, leading to some tragic consequences. Also a good reminder for the rest of us, check those batteries in your alarms. You never know when you're going to need them. Yeah, stark numbers, stark numbers there. Joe, your most underreported story this week. Yeah, a, a potential looming crisis in the United States, the shortage of gasoline this summer. People recovering from COVID-19 lockdowns wanting to take vacations may find it hard to purchase gasoline, not as a result of production issues, but as a result of a lack of people to drive the trucks to deliver the gasoline to gas stations. The National Tank Truck Carriers Association announced their estimates are 25% of the delivery fleet now idle as a result of a lack of drivers. And this uh, looks back to 2019, that rate was only 10%. This is one of the challenges emerging from COVID-19 where the workforce is not present for the jobs that need to be done. It may result in much higher prices for gasoline and even shortages at some point during the summer months. Glad I drive a hybrid. Travis, how about your most underreported story of the week? Mine is a story from the Asheville Citizen Times. You might remember during last year's uh, protest, Asheville police officers were filmed slashing water bottles and destroying medical supplies that had been stockpiled on the street uh, by protesters. The department decided it needed some public relations help after that, signed a $60,000 contract with a group called Cole Pro Media. The company describes itself as transparent, excuse me, transparency engagement advisors uh, but in a now-deleted Facebook post, they offered police departments a street-smart class in public relations designed to, and I quote, outsmart reporters. Doesn't look like it worked. <laughs> Doesn't sound smart or transparent to me. If it ended up in the story that I don't think they outsmarted them. Uh, it's time now for the lightning round when we have the who's up and who's down. So let's start with who's up and who's down from Nelson. Yes, uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson won passage in the European Parliament of a trade deal this week with zero tariffs and zero quotas. Uh, Europe essentially caved on the deal while Johnson and Brexit supporters chalked up another victory for British commerce, uh, who's down also the European Union, falling further behind in vaccinations. Uh, the UK and US have administered some 70 doses per 100 people. The EU lags far behind at 29 doses per 100 people. And of course, unfortunately, China and Russia lag even further behind. Who's up and who's down? Asher. 
Up, I'm going to say former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who entered the U.S. Senate uh, Democratic primary with a burst of momentum this week, uh, aided by an impressive list of endorsements that included some 25 sitting state legislators. And that raised my eyebrows because her two best-known primary opponents are a current state legislator and a former state legislator, uh, who's down, uh, I, I'm going to say, uh, the service economy. Now, this, this week's quarterly GDP report showed GDP approaching pre-pandemic levels, which is a great thing overall, but that positive growth masked uh, a pretty dramatic shift away from service spending and towards durable goods like cars or uh, recreational equipment. Now, it's no surprise the impact uh, that, that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the service sector. That's been well documented. But this report offers some uh, preliminary evidence that the impact could be felt for many years to come. Who's up and who's down? Joe. Up economic uh, optimism. The Gallup poll just came out showing their economic uh, uh, sensitivity among North uh, Americans is at plus two, having rebounded from negative 32 a year ago. Uh, interestingly enough, 57% of the respondents to the survey indicated they had at least some or a lot of confidence in the direction President Biden has taken the U.S. economy. Who's down? Uh, Washington Post ABC poll on the impact of COVID-19 on the personal finances found that overall 22% of Americans said a significant financial impact had hit their pocketbook as a result of COVID-19. Women and people of color reported slightly higher levels of impact than the overall standard. Uh, we'll be interested okay, to see how the recovery favors everybody in the United States. Who's up and who's down? Travis, quickly, please. Uh, uh, voter turnout. The census confirmed what we already kind of knew. 2020 elections set a record. 67% of U.S. citizens 18 years or older voted down. For a little while, there was a bill on offer at the General Assembly that would have required printers to be clearly labeled in stores, telling people how much it costs to buy the ink how long a cartridge is gonna last. I've never met anyone who said, I love my printer and feel good about what ink costs. So I'm sad to report today that as of this week, the bill is dead. Big printer wins again. Well, that's been uh, a great discussion of the underreported stories, the lightning round. I don't think we're going to have time to get to the headlines. I'll let you go a little bit longer on some of those topics, but it's a great job, panel. And that's it for us. We'll see you next week with uh, Mark Rodman back in the chair on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.